Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode, episode 12. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, what's up, man? How's it going, Josh? Had a good week this week. How about you, buddy? Uh, it's been an exciting week, man. We got stuff coming coming out. We got the Paris deal. We have the OPEC from last week. I've been excited to been looking forward to talking to you about that. Uh, what what's what's new with the OPEC, man? Yeah, so I, I said last week I kind of I wanted a week to chew on it and uh, kind of read some of the people, you know, just you know, see what's going on out there. And really, Josh, I think kind of what I thought was going to happen is that. You know, the OPEX cuts are there. They've extended them, but it's probably not going to be enough. And so I think that we're, you know, kind of looking at this $50, you know, give or take a few bucks here or there, range until the end of the year. I just don't see enough to really change that. Now, you might look at, you know, people say, well, potential war and stuff like that with North Korea could influence it. Well, of course, those things could. But just as the market is going, I think we're going to be sitting where we're at right now for the remainder of the year. And, um, you know, and then and then so you get to the end of the year and you say, well, these cuts for OPEC, well, then you're kind of back in the same cycle again um, by by 18. Now, there was some encouraging news this, this week as the um, as the storage went down, but it's still up for the year. And so it's, you know, it's it's encouraging in that sense, but but still it's overall it's it's up for the year. So I think we're looking at $50 for the rest of the year into next year and um and then even probably past that which as long as we as long as it's stable josh like we said before just stability is what we want so if it just stays at 50 for a long time i think yep. a lot of people make money yep and then I uh agree. oh i'm sorry you asked me about the paris deal the paris deal i don't really think i think you know a couple things from that one um, president trump the best i could understand said that you know we're pulling out but he wants to renegotiate it so um it's kind of funny some of the reaction on that was uh it's the worst deal ever he's going to be the worst president you know and i'm like man you know he's six months in let's <laughs> he can do a lot more stupid stuff than this i think but <laughs> you know let's give him let's give him time to really screw it up i don't think this is this is going to seal the deal for him but uh, i think for most folks especially in texas only gas business it's it's it doesn't really matter especially in the short term um if you look at some of the terms of the Texas uh, uh sorry the Paris agreement you know it was really kind of sketchy how that deal was going to work out anyways uh and so and, and the US I don't, I don't think we can get out till 2020 so you know it's a lot of it's a lot of hype it's kind of like the Brexit deal you know when Brexit happened everyone went crazy and then like well they can't leave for a couple of years it's like oh wait so all these stocks plummeted overnight for nothing then you know and so <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about this is he said he's going to renegotiate it and we can't leave till 2020 it's it seems to be a little bit of hyperbole going on there. Yeah, that's kind of the feel I was getting uh, when I was looking at some of the news responses. People were saying that waters are going to start rising and the earth's going to start heating up more because we pulled out of this deal. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty over the top reaction, I think, from some of the left. Uh, but well, Ryan, well, uh, we well, hold, a- well, hold on, Josh, real quick, I want to add on to that because here is one of the things that I that I thought and and I saw kind of this morning. Um, was, okay, if you're that concerned about it, then you can keep these restrictions on yourself. No one's saying that you can't, and no one's saying don't do it. In fact, if you want to do it, more power to you. And so I, I was kind of surprised that the left was like, well, um, hey, you know, this is the worst deal ever. Well, well okay, you just, you just keep increasing the restri- restrictions on you. And then to that, they may say, well, we're only, you know, we're only so much. We can't do it all. And to that, I would say, right, neither could the United States do it all. So, you know, if the United States... Pulling, if the United States um, by themselves cannot cure 
this quote unquote catastrophic global warming type stuff that's going on, um, and then you can't either. Then, then why are you why are you acting so um, over the top? Because I would just say that hey, you know, just go ahead and do it. If you can go ahead and do it and you can make money, well, then other people will look at you and say, oh, we can do it, make money. So a lot of hype there, I think, on that stuff. Absolutely. Um... And, and some of my eagerness to jump in, Ryan, I, uh, I failed to mention the, the jobs we have posted at globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. Um, I checked this morning. There were 18. So I wanted to remind the listeners, go in and check that out if you're if you're interested. Again, that's globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. Mentioning that Paris deal, Ryan, we have one article that we wanted to jump into for just a moment. Uh, this is from the Houston Chronicle. Trump considers a Paris withdrawal oil and gas industry is divided. And I think the general gist of this article is that the Texas oil and gas industry, or really the oil and gas industry in the nation, probably around the world, is actually, they're pretty excited about this. I and mean, it's not a major deal, but they see this as in, in the long run, reducing some of the regulations that would possibly be put on some of these companies, increased costs. Uh, so they see it as an overall uh, win. And like you mentioned, they also mentioned in the article at the bottom that they are, they are thinking about renegotiating this pair still. So we're not in the clear quite yet, but they also say that if there was a president, we wanted to negotiate the terms of a deal like this, this is the president we want to do it because he is at least sensitive to the oil and gas industry. It seems at least uh, he looks on it positively. So uh, all in all the general, general feel from the, from the industry that I've seen as I've been doing some research has been overall positive, this, this withdrawal from this Paris deal. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. They talk about the president negotiating the deal and I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I don't know, but it would seem that we'd want Congress to somewhat be involved with this process. So you don't have one person deciding the fate of the entire nation on a deal of this, you know, that's supposedly this big. Um, and so I, I kind of find it interesting that we're, you know, we, we were, some people were excited when Obama did it, and now they're mad with Trump. And that's kind of the problem with a one person running stuff, right? Is that one person, especially in our form of government, the longest one person can keep something is eight years, and then someone else will get it. So, you know, President Trump will be at, could be out of office by 2020, and then a Democrat could come back in and put us right back into this thing. So, right back into know, it would right, seem that we right would want coming out. Right, right. It would seem that, you know, congressional oversight and getting the Congress and the Senate and all those folks involved would be um, something we want to look at. That, that's kind of my first takeaway was is that, you know, when we kind of praise the president or get on a president. It's like, well, should the president really have that much authority? But beside all that, you know, one of the things that I, I've seen is, it's kind of you're kind of in a tough spot, okay? So if you're a big oil and gas company and you come out and you say, okay, well, we're, we're glad that that we're out of this. Well, then you're looking, you're you're, you're looked as your anti-environment. Um, you know, you you don't care about climate change, you don't care about all this stuff because that's just the way that the media spins it. It doesn't matter. There's no depth or perception here. Um, and so I, I do think that a lot of folks, a, it doesn't really affect them today. You know, it doesn't really affect them, and so they're not really concerned with it. Um, and then the folks that who who have come out and supported it, I, I I've been kind of shocked because I've read some of their arguments for you know why this was the um, you know we should have stayed in. And really, Josh, to be quite honest with you, it's been disappointing. It's it's not facts based. It's it's just a lot of propaganda, a lot of hyperbole, um, sensationalism, and um, you know, I, it, it's kind of sad because, as we said before, we want as oil and gas professionals, we want to make sure that we are being responsible with the environment. But we want to discuss what that looks like, right? We just don't want to say, well, just because you say it's this way, it doesn't mean it's this way. Let's discuss it. And so the, a lot of the, the problem that I've had with the reaction on the on the left or on the pro-agreement side, if you will, is that it's just so sensationalized. It's hard to see what was the benefit here. 
you know, um, what was the real benefit? Because I've seen the right throw out some stuff that's quite interesting about why this would be a really bad deal for America. And then on the left, all I hear is, is like you said, the waters are going to rise and, you know, there's going to be a big drought and all that stuff. And, and no, okay, if that's true, can we prevent it? How do we prevent it? That's fine. Let's discuss that. But let's actually put some facts out there, you know? Yeah, that's, that's uh, exactly. I, I, the, the question that was being put to, to some, uh, some of the mayors in some of the liberal cities was uh, basically – Look, we, we, if we even admit that there is global warming and that waters are rising, how does these policies help prevent that? Like what, how does giving $3 billion to China, India, who don't even implement the rules that we're forced to implement, how does giving money to them help the streets over here in Miami or, or wherever? So it, we need some specific facts and examples of how this policy was helping prevent climate change um, in a way that was beneficial, it was worth worth our time. It was, we're, we were putting a lot of money out there for other countries to to develop some of these clean energy sources, and basically just giving it to them. I mean, yeah, with, with no real benefit for us at all. You know, and this is kind of one of the pros and the cons of being an American, right? So, as an American, you think, you know what? I can go and I can uh, I can do all of all of this stuff. I can be an entrepreneur and I can be in a, cause I live in America and America is the leader. And when you're the leader, or even, even if you perceive to be the leader, it doesn't matter if you are or not, when you perceive yourself as the leader, okay, um, what's going to happen is, is that especially a country of 330 million people, you're going to disagree on what the leader should do. And so, you know, you got the left who's saying, well, the leader should do this, you know, and the right saying, well, the leader should do this. And the rest of the world's looking to you and saying, well, this is what the leader's doing. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's so, it's so much this arbitrary nonsense. It's really hard to figure out, but it's, it's part of it is because we live in America and we do kind of view ourselves as the global leader in whatever, rightfully or wrongfully. Whereas if you were to go to uh, insert small country here, I'm not going to pick on one, but insert small country here, they're not going to step up to the stage and have this big, diverse debate because for them, they're insignificant, right? So being at the top of the – so I guess I guess it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing because we are at least considered one of the leaders, if not the leader in the world, uh, depending on who you ask. You know, we are in the discussion, but the downside of that is is that the, the, the opinions are so diverse and they get hostile that it makes it tough to really understand what's all going on. Yep, agreed. Well, uh, moving on from the Paris deal, uh, I wanted to talk uh, just a minute about an article. Um, this is Austin P- N- NPR station. It's titled as Texas Jobs Lost in the Old Bus May Not Be Coming Back. It's just that the article is basically 80,000 jobs were lost around 2014 with the bust. And uh, in order to recoup from that, a lot of a lot of costs were cut, and, and one of the ways they did that was by automating with machinery some of the jobs that people had to do. And so some of these jobs, they were hoping as oil prices started to rise this year, production was up, that some of the, you know, most of these jobs would be uh, recovered. And what they're seeing is that due to some of that automation and due to the market starting to slow down a bit, what, what they quote in here is a substantial slowdown, that there's a fear that a lot of these jobs are actually not going to be recovered. Um, Ryan, what did you think uh, about the article as you read through it? Yeah, the first thing, uh, Josh, is that we've kind of said on the show before, hey, if you see a job, go get a job. And I just interviewed someone from Rig Zone the other day on my other podcast, and uh, she was saying that, that what they're seeing is that jobs are coming back, but they're not paying as much. And so they're seeing people who are holding out, waiting on this 
you know, higher paying job, but it's not out there. It's just not out there. So if you're still out in the market and you're holding out for a job, go ahead and capitalize. That's the first thing. The second thing is, um, now, you know, if you know anything about where I work at, we are, we are insignificant in the industry. We're nothing, right? We're, we're, we're just like anyone else. We're a small business. So if we go away, it doesn't matter. However, um, we're trying to use technology too because we got to lower our cost. We've got to be competitive. And so we're not automating drill rigs, but we're using um, GIS technology to automate some of our workflows. And so this is going on throughout the industry. Now, that doesn't mean that the – so what that means is is that the, the rig job, right, those are gone. But then different people had to build rigs because the rigs are now automated. So you have a different job that's being you know brought into the industry that wasn't there before. Um, is it as many? That's a different discussion. But just like us, you know, we're looking to bring on some GIS uh, customized technology for some some of the stuff that we do. Well, that's a different job, right? That's a GIS uh, programmer or architect or wherever he goes by that's going to develop that for us. Um, so I think, you know, if you're in the oil and gas business and you don't have a job, get one now. If you're not sure where to get back in at, then you need to kind of step back and say, okay, here's here's my sector of the industry. Um, here's where the projections are for it to come back. And I'm going to take those optimistic projections. I'm going to take those pessimistic projections. And then I'm going to kind of figure out, okay, what does automation look like for my job? Is it possible today? Is it possible five years from now? Is it possible 10 years from now? Because, you know, if you worked on a rig, then I'm sure you can find a job um, working for a company that builds automated rigs. You know, they probably need skilled labor that understands, you know, exactly some of the difficulties that, they, um, that they're that they going to encounter. So that's that's kind of how I took it as, hey, if you don't have one we said before, go get you one if you're wanting to get back to work. Don't wait around. And the second thing is um, if, if you're afraid that your job may be lost um, because it's because of automation like this drilling rig's talking about here, uh, then you need to sit back and say, okay, well, if the rig's going to take my job, what does that mean for me? Do I want to go build rigs now because that would be an option, or do I want to transition to another part of the industry that may, that might be um, safe from this type of automation in the near future? So that's that's how I took it, Josh. Um, and uh, I know this is happening throughout the industry, and, and it's, uh, it's a good and bad thing. It's a good thing because it increases the profitability of the companies that we work for, which means they can do more work. And it's a bad thing because people you know, ultimately will lose the job that they're used to having. Yeah, you know, and you see this pretty much in, in every industry, Ryan. You have technology that's being developed that's forcing people to have to go in and refine their craft and and, and adapt in order to move forward. You know, and, and uh, I just read a book recently by a guy named Cal Newport, and he talked about how people who can really spend a lot of time focused on developing new crafts, that as technology changes, it's going to change the jobs that are necessary and that we have to adapt with it. We have to learn. And, and make progress. I mean, you may have to learn how to do some new things in order to, to keep up with the industry. And, and this is true basically in every industry out there. The technology is forcing us to to learn. I mean, the jobs are still going to be there because somebody, like you said, somebody's got to build the technology. Somebody's got to build the new machines. There's going to be jobs that are there that require people. Um, but there's opportunity, opportunity there as well. And, and you know, we don't want to be insensitive to, to the fact that some people are, are losing their jobs. We just uh, want to encourage anyone that's out there to develop new skills and, yeah, and make and, sure and, that you're ready. And let's let's put uh, a, a, realist, a realistic spin on why this is actually a good thing. So, you know, you, you, you'll see the debate on buying products from China, okay? Um, and people, we, we, we buy a lot of stuff from China. And that stuff is what? It's really, really cheap because the 
predominant jobs in China or these factory jobs that don't pay a lot. Definitely. So we can bowl, we can buy this um, iPhone case that I'm holding in my hand right now for whatever it was, five, ten, fifteen bucks. I don't remember. If you did that same job in America, well, you know, probably going to cost a lot more. Now, so you look at that, and and no matter what we do, if you look, if you just stop and look around wherever you're at. Um, there's all these things that are in finished product form. So I'm looking at an audio mixer, a monitor, a cell phone. Um, well, those those things came from multiple things, right? And that's the division of labor. So you have this division of labor that goes down to all of these parts. And in America, because we are talk about the leader thing, we are one of the leaders in the world, um, we're on the higher end of the, of the division of labor. So when you look at this uh, this automation for these rigs, what's happening is, is actually we're moving up in the division of labor chain. And so we're getting better jobs. So th- that means that the automation job now will be a safer job. It'll probably be a more stable job and it will require a higher level of education. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because everyone in that, in that industry now will, will raise up a little bit and they'll learn a new skill as you mentioned. And the, the, the parts of the job that aren't profitable here in the U.S., maybe making parts or something like that, will be exported to you know a China or somewhere in South America where it is profitable. So it moves us up on the, the division of labor scale, which is a good thing. And um, you know as you mentioned, Josh, this kind of stuff is happening in all types of industries. It's just that we're not aware of it because we're not in the audio mixer making business. That just you know I don't know anything about that other than I've got one plugged in right here. So we just probably don't realize it as much as it's actually happening. Yes, I agree. Well, moving to uh, the next article, we have from the Fox Business uh, information, again, on the Permian. Surprise, surprise. The oil play that could flood the natural gas market. Uh, so what they're uh, basically looking at is there's a, the oil-rich Permian Basin is emerging as a major source of new natural gas. Uh, the West Texas region has become the most prolific spot for horizontal oil drilling and fracking. They are expecting the gas production in the Permian Basin to triple by 2020 uh, compared to its 2010 levels. Uh, lots of deals have been made. We've mentioned a few of them. Blackstone Group LP last month agreed to pay $2 billion for Eagle Claw Midstream Ventures, LLC. And Kinder Morgan uh, has agreed to do at least two other uh, plans to, to spend billions of dollars on some new pipelines, which we've already covered some of that. But what we're seeing here is that natural gas in the Permian uh, there, people are making huge moves, and it's expecting it to uh, to flood the flood the market. Yeah, you know, and this is one of those things where um, you know we're, we're projecting you know triple the numbers by twenty twenty, and and this is going to be a, a price driven thing, right? You know, so if the prices plummet, then this won't matter. Right. But it is something to watch out for because uh, one of the things I've been tra- I've been kind of tracking here is. Um, if you watch the assets that are being purchased in the Eagleford, it seems that they're being purchased for what, you know, 25, 50 cents on the dollar from two years ago. Whereas what's being purchased in the Permian um, is really expensive. And last week we talked about uh, the ability to drill gas in Mexico um, in, in the Eagleford rather and send it to Mexico. Okay. So now uh, this article is kind of saying, well, the Permian, because it's got so much oil, you know, there's a lot of drilling going on there, and it's getting the natural gas. So I'm not really sure how that's going to affect the Eagleford. And we're actually bringing on uh, Sergio Chapa here in a few minutes to talk about that. I'm, I'm curious what he says, because I, I think what we might see here, Josh, is that the Permian might be kind of the oil and gas juggernaut um, for, for the foreseeable future for the U.S., and then the Eagleford might shift to be a complete or a predominant Mexico place. So I, I'm curious to see... I'm curious to see what Sergio has to say about that when he comes on here in just a few minutes. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to ask him about that because, you know, we've been talking, uh, I mean, it seems, you know, we, we joke that this should be the Texas and Mexico oil, oil and gas podcast. 
Um, we've seen a lot of plays that have been taking place where people are uh, are trying to capitalize on the lack of supply in Mexico and their lack of infrastructure. And so Eagleford may become the major player in that. And if it does, I mean, it's just going to be huge for, for that basin. Um, right, right. Super exciting. Uh, I'm ready to get him on. One last thing, um, Ryan, the, we're going to put in the show notes here, the Lone Star Resources. Uh, they, they have a deal that doubles their Eagleford leasehold. So if you're, if you're paying attention, this is one of those times where I'm, I'm telling you, if you're looking for a job, you're looking for some opportunities, Lone Star Resources, they're based out of Fort Worth. They're doubling their Eagleford leasehold. So check them out. Uh, we're going to link this into the show notes. So take a look at it if you're interested and uh, do some research. Yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, always trying to give you the free, the free goods, huh, Josh? That's right, man. That's right. Well, Ryan, uh, we are going to get Sergio on here shortly. Uh, do we want to do the rig count now, or you want to wait until after we finish with him? Well, you know, Josh, actually, Sergio is on the line right now. So let me uh, let me bring him on the show. Well, Sergio, um, you've put nice things about me out publicly, and that's why I brought you on the show today. <laughs> so thank you for coming on. <laughs> Not a problem. Not a problem. Glad to glad to be on. Well, good good deal. No, uh, let's get into it. So we were just talking about a minute ago. Um, this this concept that maybe the Permian, because it's drilling so much oil and there's a lot of gas as a byproduct, that it might affect the Eagleford. No one has their finger on the pulse like of the Eagleford like you do. What are you hearing about those type of concerns? Well, okay, for right now, um, there is a lot of activity in the Permian. It's the hottest shell play in the United States, but the way the pipelines and everything are set up, um, everyone is trying to move that 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 oil and gas to the uh, Gulf Coast, you know, Houston and Corpus Christi. Right now, the biggest opportunities, like in in midstream for like natural gas, for natural gas, or in Mexico, building pipelines. There, are, there are two big, you know, cross-border uh, pipelines in the Permian Basin. Uh, but the way things are set up right now, there were like ten in the Eagleford. You know, that's not an exact number, but it's it's pretty close. Um, right. Uh, ten major pipelines, and there's more being built, um, all oriented towards, you know. The U.S.-Mexico border in South Texas, the Eagleford, moving Eagleford gas right. to shale gas from the Eagleford to, you know, Mexico. Yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of my, my thought as well, is that the Permian might be selling to the U.S., but the Eagleford is positioned to sell to Mexico. Now, I know you were at the Mexico Gas Summit um, a couple weeks, what was it, last week or a week before last, and uh, you've got an article out about it. Uh, what all did you learn there? Right. So, yeah, it just reiterated what's what's already out there is that the, the infrastructure projects are um, are all oriented towards South Texas as far as like cross border natural gas pipelines go. And we're, we're talking big, big projects and several big players already have, um, you know, pipelines across the border. There's like companies like Kinder Morgan already have them. And then you have like, you know, uh, like San Antonio's um, Howard Energy Partners. They're building a, a new uh, cross-border natural gas pipeline, uh, Laredo, linking Laredo and Monterey. That's definitely one to watch. And um, so the, the way it works out, though, and what I learned at the Mexico Gas Summit, is that all the demand is in eastern and central Mexico. You know, um, mm-hmm. So those pipelines are feeding cities like Monterey, San Luis Potosí, you know, Mexico City, places like that into the interior, whereas the ones from the Permian – are typically routed through, like, you know, Presidio Ojinaga or El Paso, uh, Ciudad Juarez, and then into cities in, in western Mexico. And they do have separate pipelines, 
you know, in Arizona and California, but they're, they're nothing that you see on the scale of, of, of Texas, in particular South Texas, because, you know, all the maquiladoras, all the new power plants, the natural gas powered, uh, the natural gas fired power plants, all of them are in that kind of Northeast Mexico or central Mexico. So logistically, it makes more sense to put these pipelines from the Eagleford across the border and then into the Mexican interior. Right. I was talking to someone the other day about Corpus Christi, and I was talking about, you know, hey, I may want to put an office down there. There's a lot of opportunity. And, and his take was is, is that Corpus, even though it's kind of it's, – it's in the Eagleford area, it's really more a Permian-type deal where Permian lines are going to the Corpus, these, these ports that are being built in Corpus. Um, so what is your take on Corpus? How will it fit into this Mexico expansion project? Is it going to be more Permian stuff that's going to Corpus and getting shipped out, or will there be some um, facilities that will be built in Corpus that will um, push this product down to Mexico? No, I, I think you and your friend made a made a good observation. Um, that's definitely the trend right now. I mean, early on in the, you know, the days of the Eagleford, yeah, everything was getting ratted from the Eagleford Shale to, um, to, um, to Corpus, you know, and um, it, it, it makes sense. They're they're right there. They're neighbors. You know, I mean, that, it's 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 a no brainer. But you know, where it's gotten really more interesting is 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 in what you, what you're talking about with the uh, Permian Basin. Now, with the rise of the Permian Basin and, you know, people saying that 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 the Permian has as much oil as Saudi Arabia, um, it's got to move to market. It just can't stay out in, right. in Midland, Odessa. They've got to get it to ports. Right. They've got to get it out. Um, so, yeah, what you've seen is, is a big number of uh, of, uh, you know, pipeline projects moving, you know, crude oil and, uh, you know, in some cases, natural gas out from West Texas to Corpus Christi in Houston, getting that, getting that, getting that, getting those products to market. And, and it's huge. And I'll tell you what, um, this kind of plays in the other thing I wanted to talk about is that the, um, that, that companies like Occidental Petroleum, everybody knows them as Oxy. Well, Oxy's a huge player in the Permian Basin. I mean, they have like, I believe like hundreds of thousands of acres out out in the Permian, and, mm-hmm. and they're doing they're doing great. You see you see them filing you know drilling permits by the you know by the dozens you know out in the Permian, and um, they need to move that oil. And one of the things they they did at their at the port of Corpus Christi is that they did an important test with the with the VLCC tanker, and that's you know for for most other people outside the industry who don't know that's 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 very large crude carrier very large crude carrier a vlcc and it's like a super tanker um normally these things are um you know too big to go into the port you know but what they did is they, they brought it in empty so it can navigate the channel safely and then dock safely and what they wanted to do is test to see how compatible these these super tankers are with their facilities and um, the, the so the idea is that they could fill that that tanker up, you know, 50 or 60 percent, then it can safely get out to the Gulf of Mexico where smaller tankers can do, you know, ship to ship um, loading or what they call transloading and then fill it up 100 percent. And then it goes out with 2.2 million barrels worth of crude oil to destinations like in Europe or Asia or Latin America, wherever it needs to go. Right, and it's a real it's a real game changer, and and, and you know, and, and what what you were talking about is is very true that that oil that needs to make it to market, and this is a very important link, and this is a very noteworthy test, you know, that they did at the Port of Corpus Christi. So I think I think a lot of people 
you know, should be paying attention to that because I think you'll see, I think this is something that'll become more and more common. And as the port of Corpus Christi, you know, has plans to deepen its channel, you know, and, and, and get a higher uh, harbor bridge with a higher clearance, you're just going to see bigger and bigger tankers moving in and out of that port. So it might even rival Houston one day. Exactly. And Oxy bought, if I'm not mistaken, an old naval uh, facility there. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a real nice facility, real real spacious. So one of the things there that is that one of the uh, executives with Oxy told me at the event is that uh, you know if the, if this works out the way they think it's going to work out, they're going to double or triple the throughput. Wow. Um, at that facility, and they certainly have the room to do it. They got room, all types of room for tanks, and of course they got all all you know all the oil in the world from the Permian Basin, so they just move it the corpus via pipeline and you know it's a done deal absolutely well you have a full article on your experience there uh that we will link to in the show notes um, so people can go and check it out and learn more about what's going on there um i want to transition into something that you caught on to that i think gets lost a lot is that when the oil and gas industry is doing well there's jobs that are created that we don't really think about and so you you've got an article talking about frac sands and you know and how that's changing and it's you know it's a necessary thing that has to happen but we don't really think of the impact um, of the oil and gas market as wide as it reaches and so one of the things i like to say is that yeah when oil prices at 100 dollars a barrel there are more jobs for people who drive 18 wheelers you know because you know they got trucks that are carrying this product around and there's more that means there's more tire jobs and all all this stuff but talk to me about what's going on with the frac sands right now no yeah you're absolutely right again um so one of the one of the key ingredients for this this shale revolution for the for the hydraulic fracturing is is frac sand, and uh, it's more so now than ever before. Um, you know, like in the early days of fracking, they were experimenting with different, uh, you know, uh, chemicals and solutions and everything. But but as it just turns out, plain old sand and water is, is the best thing to use, and it's particularly this this grade of sand known as frac sand, real fine sand. Um, and the thing is logistically with, with, you know, I think it takes, uh, I forget the exact tonnage, but, but the, the, the frac sand per well has shot up as companies kind of found their, you know, secret sauce for hydraulic fracturing. So you've seen that demand correspondingly, you know, this is a business opportunity for frac sand companies to provide this sand to those to the oil companies. So, so what you've seen is like a huge boost in, in the logistics industry. So, so most frac sand, it comes from like, you know, places like Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, Northern States. And, and it's just the quality of sand and the way it is. And, but shipped by rail to Texas, to, to rail yards. And, uh, and then it's stored in these huge towers, these massive, like 16 story towers. And, uh, just they're like silos, just but just for sand, and um, they're stored there. And then an eighteen-wheeler will come by, and then phew, they'll dump the sand, fill it up, and then the eighteen-wheeler goes to the to the um, to the to the frac site. But what's interesting, if you were to line up, if you let's say you had enough eighteen-wheelers to actually pull this off, you could line them up, and it'll be four miles of eighteen-wheelers, bumper wow. to bumper. Yeah, just for a single well, like in the Permian Basin or the Eagleford. And um, that's a lot of trips, and it's just the way it is logistically. The way it, the way it, it has to happen. It's like it goes from rail to these to um, to um, to these eighteen wheelers out to the site, and um, what do you call it? Um, so location is key for these frac sand companies. What they've done is they've built, you know, 
uh, rail yards, you know, as, as close as they can right. to the oil wells. And uh, what, what you're seeing right now in the Permian night, there's there's a company out of Houston, Twin Eagle, and they they, they provide frac sand in, in multiple basins. But uh, they're they're pretty much, you know, expanding or doubling, tripling their um, their facility in Big Spring, which is out in the Permian mm-hmm. Basin, just to meet the demand out there. Well, it, it sounds like that I should have gotten the frac sand business a few years ago. Now, you know, might have <laughs> well, might have just missed the missed the curve on that. Um, I do want well, to go, 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 that ahead, business sorry. was a little soft when the, during the downturn, but it <laughs> appears to be bouncing back uh, a bit better than ever now. Right, and just one question on this: um, you know, we talked about the problems with drilling in Mexico, stuff like this. Is this stuff that they're going to have problems with as well, or do they have a way to work around some of getting the frac sand down there? You know, when they um, no, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, when um, when, when they first announced the Mexico's energy reforms, it's it supposed to be like this Oklahoma Sooners land rush into Mexico or right. companies just rushing in. And, and once that kind of enthusiasm died down and people took a real look at the issues, um, things like frac sand and water and, and the, you know, the fracking chemicals, everything, mm-hmm. it's like, well, these aren't, these aren't really available in Mexico you know, they don't have service companies right. that provide these. And then, then of course, there's security issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we're seeing like right now in Mexico is that a lot of, you know, upstream companies, they're just kind of taking a step back, even though there have been like, you know, public bids for, you know, mature fields and unconventional fields. Um, they're not really getting the, the bites, especially at the current oil prices. It's just not, not enough to... To, for that to make sense, but what you are seeing in Mexico is the um, uh, for companies from Texas, you're finding a lot of midstream companies and downstream companies finding good, good opportunities. Yeah, you know, in Mexico, and, and, and not to belabor the point, but one other thing that I, ha- I have heard as well is that the, the because the deals are so new, the, you know, the, the reforms are just getting rolled out that no mm-hmm. one's really sure how all these contracts are going to be litigated and you know how stable they are, <laughs> and so there's a lot of skepticism on that side. Like you say, it was people went down there very high hopes, and then as the process has kind of gone along, I think there's a lot of money to be made, but they're they're trying to figure out exactly where do you start making money before you can go make the quote unquote real money. So it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch out over the next few years um one no, fi- you're, you're right oh go ahead sorry no i said you're, you're definitely right yeah so one final thing we we always love giving our listeners a um a way to go go get business today you know we, we'll pull up an article so-and-so sold this so-and-so bought that and you do a great job probably the best in texas of telling people where they where people are drilling at so kind of walk us through your drilling permit roundup and i will tell the folks out there it you know you've got to be a subscriber to the san antonio business journal but it's worth it because you give information that says hey if you're in these counties here's you know here's what's going on so talk us through your report and when does it come out and where can people find it oh right yeah thanks ryan um yeah no it's 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 actually one of the favorite parts of my week every monday i go go to the railroad commission and i download a uh the whole, the whole permits for the whole state. That way, I get a whole look at the, the whole state and who's drilling and who's drilling where. And um, but in I also I do a specific South Texas drilling permit roundup, taking all that data and just and then narrowing it down to South Texas. And you can see, you know, what companies are doing the best. And a lot of the times, you know, they're filing these permits before, you know, these these big deals are publicly announced. So you'll mm-hmm. see public companies like like Devon Energy, um, you know, you know, returning to drilling where they had been absent for months. And 
and and you can you know that that's coming because they filed the permit before they actually moved the rig there right and and uh and so you'll know ahead of time you know like like these companies are planning to do these you know to 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 do these things out there and it's you know it's it's it's, it's good it's good market intel and I, and I, I do love it i mean so i mean i've watched other public companies like like they just stop drilling in the Eagleford and the downturn and suddenly they start filing drilling permits signaling that they're returning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's pretty good. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, we've tried to talk about on the show and um, I think that, you know, people in business development, we kind of get caught up in the, Hey, here's a conference. Hey, here's this, uh, here's a golf tournament. Here's a, um, you know, a shootout or whatever. And we'll, we'll go do those things. And those are, those are fine. But there's a lot of information that's right there on the web, your article and others that would tell you if you would just go read it. And if you find out that company X just got a, you know, a, a big surge in cash or they're moving their permits where they, you know, they're permitting an area they hadn't permitted before. You can do work that people may, you know, that they're not targeting. So companies that aren't being targeted by other competitors, um, you can go and do the work and, and it's right there. It's on the internet. It kind of blows my mind sometimes how, you know, we we uh, in the oil and gas industry, we kind of miss the fact that there's so much information out there that we could probably target our clients just a little bit better if we did the kind of work that you're doing. No, I I agree. You're absolutely right. It's it's good what we call business leads. It's good. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're in the wireline business, if you're in you know, uh, you know, the storage tank business, you should be chasing after these companies. You know, get get ahead of time. I mean, these are these are good these are good strong leads that that can that can that, that are good sales prospects. You Absol- know, on that side, and, and we enjoy providing that. So absolutely, well, guys, we will put a link to all the articles we talked about uh, with Sergio today. And uh, Sergio, is there anything else that you want to say? Hey, go check this out while we got you on. No, not right now. Uh, you know, I think I think next week I'll just do a shout out. Um, Next week, I'm going to do the story. It's the five San, Anto- San Antonio companies to watch in the Permian Basin. Um, there you we've go. Had, we've had some very strong success stories out there from companies here in San Antonio, and, and we'll be featuring them next week. Okay. Well, we will be looking for that. Also, we'll link to Sergio's uh, Twitter. He also is a storm chaser on the side. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're out in the oil, oil fields uh, all the time, yeah, the, you're there with the weather. So. <laughs> you're all kinds of things when you get out in the oil yeah. patch, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. You never know. All right, well, Sergio, thank you so much for coming on. All right, man. Take it easy, Ryan. Well, uh, a huge thanks to Sergio for coming on our show today. Uh, like always, we're going to wrap everything up with a look at the rig count from the Baker Hughes. Uh, I looked this morning. We were up seven uh, for the week. We're at 908 rigs. Uh, Texas is at 458. The Permian is 362, and Eagleford is 86. Ryan, anything you want to finish off with, uh, with the APIYP or um, any events coming up? Yeah, you know, Josh, one of the things, and I will link to uh, Mark LaCour's website. Mark LaCour sends out a uh, monthly website that kind of gives you an overview of what's going on. Uh, especially in Texas, events that are happening. And so there's several this month that are that are good, that if you're interested in, that you might want to look to. So I'll link to Mark's website. You go to his website, you sign up for the newsletter. It's once a month, I believe. But all it is is industry news and events. I'm sorry, not news, industry events only. So if you're looking to network or learn or whatever, this is a good you know, this is a good thing to to subscribe to. It's not a lot of, not a lot of spam there. Um, and then the other thing is... 
If you're not subscribed to John Kemp's uh, email letter, uh, newsletter from Reuters, I will link to his email in the show notes where you can subscribe. You, you should. It's full of information. It comes out sometimes a couple times a day, chock full of information, and uh, really think that you would enjoy it and find it valuable. So we'll link to both those things in the show notes so you guys can kind of um, you know look at some of the resources that we're using to kind of build our database of information. But thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, keep climbing. Thank you.